Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Ahead of the Cloud, Coevolve's podcast on SD-WAN, SASE, and multi-cloud networking. We've got an exciting episode today, and we're actually working on a lot of other exciting episodes right now. So we've got some interesting topics coming up around multi-cloud networking, smart services, and some of the other capabilities that Coevolve really can, I think, share a good story about and tell some more details about in the industry. Uh, We've also got some great upcoming guests on some future episodes. And as always, please let us know if there's any topics you'd like us to cover. So you can find our contact details in the show notes. And we'll also share some details in there about the topics we're planning to cover in some of these upcoming episodes. So today I'm joined again by Tim Sullivan, and we're going to talk about something that feels like a bit of an anomaly when you compare it with the the rapid growth of cloud and SD-WAN and SASE. And this whole topic is around how it feels that many enterprises are still taking a very conservative position when it comes to the underlay in their networks. And you know, this is a topic that you and I have spoken about for years, Tim, back, uh, take you all the way back here down memory lane to 2002 when we first worked together in London. And what struck me was that even back then, so we're talking about you know, a huge distance of time uh, has passed since then. And at the time, we were working on a very large thousand plus site network for a large global car rental firm. And the goal there was to replace these legacy X25 and frame relay networks at every one of these rental stations. So the networks were being turned off, so they needed to quite urgently replace those uh, legacy pieces of infrastructure. And so even then, there was a pretty clear business case for not using a private network. So this is way before cloud or anything like that. And it was even before there was real high-speed broadband universally available everywhere. We were dealing with ADSL connections and one and a half, two megabits per second connections. And I think as we looked at the type of architecture that we could deliver, the expectation was that this would be delivered on MPLS and that MPLS would replace the legacy uh, networks that that were being turned off. But we could see at the time that there was a pretty clear business case to use internet based underlay for those networks. And to use IPsec VPN over just basic broadband connections. And I know it seems like a long time ago in the past, but it's shocking to me even today how many similarities there are with the types of conversation we're having with client today, where we're still talking about many of these same questions about, is it MPLS, is it internet, or how do you how do you compare and contrast between the two of them? <laughs> yeah, hey mate, uh, good to be back on the uh, podcast. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Gosh, you're taking me back there 20 years almost, mate. Um, but uh, you're right in that some of the themes are suspiciously similar. And, uh, you know, our perspective was always, um, you know, treat the client's precious budget, you know, um, carefully. And, uh, you know, in that car rental scenario, of course, you know, what you needed for those massively uh, high volume transactional sites at a Heathrow or Frankfurt airport, we're, of course, they were going to be a different requirement to that car rental station on an island in Greece that was only open half of the year. So, you know, always sort of right size the technology, whatever is the latest technology. And MPLS had been around a couple of years then, but it was still sort of seen as the shiny new toy in the industry back then. Um, you know, uh, really right size the technology to what the business requirement is. So, uh, you know, that bit hasn't changed. Uh, some of the acronyms might have changed a bit. Yeah, I think that's true. And speaking of acronyms, I mean, we've seen technologies like SD-WAN and now SASE more recently than that. They've become really mainstream. So pretty much every WAN procurement exercise now is expecting that these technologies will be part of it. We're seeing 
significant growth rates across the whole industry, you know, greater than uh, 50% compound annual growth rates year on year. So it's not just an anomaly anymore, it's, it's really changing these networks. But what's interesting is that it's becoming very clear, and it's been true to some extent since the beginning, but as you start to get more maturity into these technologies, some of these points are becoming just really quite evident in that SD-WAN obviously doesn't equal no MPLS. So by moving to SD-WAN, it's not a given that you're going to rip out MPLS out of the network. And MPLS and private networking technology really does remain a big part of these enterprise networks. So took a look just last month at the, the Telegeography WAN Manager Survey, and what they're saying is that MPLS is still used at more than 70% of uh, the sites that they, they surveyed in, as part of that report. And that, to me, shows that there's still a high level of conservatism and just uh, perhaps uh, reluctance to move away from some of this infrastructure. And that's one of the topics I want to go into today a little bit, is just to kind of break that open a bit to see what's causing that. You know, why is there still so much MPLS out there when it feels like in many ways, the industry has moved on. The, the applications, the cloud adoption and so on would seem to be contrary to that sort of 70% statistic on the MPLS side. I think another key point is that a lot of enterprises, and this was reflected in the WAN Manager survey as well, they still see the network as being like a primary backup scenario. So you invest in a good circuit at each site, you've got a primary circuit, and then you've got a backup circuit or multiple backups then if needed. And what that tends to do is to drive the use of high cost circuits. So whether it's DIA, whether it's still MPLS, whatever it might be, they'll often have SLAs in place for fixed times and so on. So I think I'd like to look at today, you know, what's driving these decisions? And is this architecture, first of all, is it necessary? And second, is it even sensible when you look at what these networks are expecting to deliver today? And there's a phrase that I've heard in the industry, I've been saying it at events and panels for probably more than six years now at this stage, which is the whole, is MPLS dead question? And really at this point, I think we're looking at, well, what does it take? You know, what is it gonna take for this technology to really rapidly start to move out of these enterprise networks and have internet-based technology replace it? And why is it taking probably longer than I think any of us expected for that technology to, uh, to die out in those networks? Yeah, the inertia is crazy, isn't it? Um, it's, uh... It's a slow moving industry in some ways. We often comment that the pace of the technology change is moving rapidly and and it is on some levels, but the enterprise adoption that follows that technology innovation, um, it takes time. There's a lot of inertia through the industry. And, um, you know, you used a, a couple of phrases there, like, you know, is MPLS dead? The industry has, you know, the industry has moved on. And you're right, it, it has moved on. But, you know, we always sort of coach our team, don't we, you know, don't be biased for MPLS. Don't be biased against MPLS. It's just an underlay option in the circuit uh, pool of options that you need to assess. It's nothing more than that. Um, think of the SD-WAN overlay, adding all of the intelligence and making the cloud services that inevitably are the core of what you need to deliver to your end users first and foremost, and then plug in the circuit underlay choices that make sense. And MPLS is just one of those choices. Um, so, you know, be pragmatic, you know, look at the data points, look at what your industry peers are achieving, um, you know, do some real number crunching. So don't be dogmatic about, you know, I must retain MPLS or for that matter, 
you know, um, MPLS is dead, I've been told I need to replace it. Don't be dogmatic, be pragmatic, you know, look at what your drivers are that you need to make sure are met now and in the near future. And we all know that predicting the future is, uh, is incredibly hard and the last 12 months have reinforced that on another level. Um, so be pragmatic about how you assess these options. So that's really what we're trying to achieve out of these podcasts, isn't it, mate? That, you know, share some of these anecdotes and uh, viewpoints and data points to, uh, to help people make some pragmatic uh, assessments. That's, that's absolutely right. And I think this is a, a foundational topic for many of those subsequent discussions as well, because it all starts with that underlay and getting that right and sourcing it correctly and sizing it correctly really leads to the success or failure of a lot of other projects and initiatives that sit across the top of that network. So, yep, it absolutely has to start there. Exactly. But don't, don't um, you know, take that one liner from a telco salesperson that says, the quality of the underlay must be, you know, uh, exceptional and sort of stop your thinking for yourself there. Get a range of opinions. Um, and really, as I say, you know, pragmatically assess what the requirements are, how much more bandwidth you require, where is that traffic really going to? It's, it's the internet. It's not your own internal destinations that much anymore. So, um, you know, consider the quality of the underlay, but don't stop at that first telco salesman's comment that, you know, that is the foundation and everything above it, you know, must be high quality. Well, what, what's the use case? What's the budget for that site? What am I really trying to achieve? That's what matters. So let's take a look at what's driving some of these architecture choices, because I don't think it's fair to say that all of these enterprises are just choosing to continue to build networks with private connectivity. And it's, it's a fact that many of the, the networks and applications are moving towards the cloud. So there's obviously an interest and a willingness across most enterprises to start adopting more of these public cloud services. And it does seem to be in conflict with that, that there's still so much private bandwidth out there. So I think one thing we would note is that these MPLS networks, the traditional infrastructure, they tend to be bought on longer term contracts. So I think it's very possible that a lot of enterprises, they're still stuck in these contracts. They're in a three-year term or a five-year term and can't necessarily easily extract themselves from that just yet. And I think we'd expect to see the mix change quite a bit further as each of these contracts become eligible for change. That is not a given that the enterprise is going to go and uh, just resource exactly the same type of network in the, in the next iteration. I think there probably is an appetite to change in many cases, but it's still got maybe 24 months or 18 months left on a contract. So that's what's delaying those types of decisions. Yeah, for sure, mate. I think, you know, these themes are global. So, you know, we've got clients in Europe, we've got clients in Asia PAC, we've got clients in North America, we've got sites in 77 countries. So there's a lot of data points that we've got. Um, but absolutely, mate, those, those themes are consistent uh, with all the clients that we talk to. There's a bit of a traditional way of thinking inside these enterprises in some cases. So there's a mindset of, well, we've always built the networks this way. It needs to have a certain level of quality associated with it. And there is perhaps not the, the full level of support across the organization to go down a different path. So that in itself can lead to some inertia. It can lead to networks being bought in ways that resemble the previous generation. And it means that there's a bit of a motivation to try to find a way of sourcing the network where there's somebody that you can hold accountable. And in many cases, and in traditional networks, that was the telco. So you would buy the network from 
a, a global or a regional telco, they would implement the network if they had to uh, combine that by using off-net components or third parties to build the overall network. You'd still have one point of contact that you could hold accountable and in theory anyway, go to for SLA credits and so on, which is an interesting topic in itself that we'll talk about later on in this session. But the idea is that that will be the entity that you could you could go to if there were issues with the network. And what we've seen across the industry is that those uh, telcos will go to pretty great lengths to try to hold on to that, that type of uh, agreement and arrangement because it's so lucrative. It's on a long-term contract. You can protect the pricing and so on. And you know, we've seen some pretty creative uh, approaches that, that maybe look good on paper from the telcos, but in reality probably don't represent the best interests of the of the enterprise. And I know that's been a, a pretty hot topic for a lot of uh, clients that we've spoken to is that they felt that the uh, the telco wasn't necessarily sitting on their side of the table to uh, to try to improve things or to move things forward for them. Yeah, that's right. If, if this network's going to change shape radically, and goodness knows the traffic across this uh, enterprise network has changed massively in the last five years. We all know that, and we'll talk more about that through the podcast. But if you're seeking advice from the telco sales team uh, about that circuit underlay, then of course they're going to recommend that you keep their MPLS product and on their network. Um, you know, it's pretty obvious, really. It's, you know, the, uh, the fox in charge of the hen house, really, or, or an analogy I sort of think of in these COVID times is, you know, I see sort of CEOs sort of looking at their IT spend and their network spend and thinking, there's all this MPLS spend into these offices that's not being utilised because, you know, we've got a lot of people working from home and um, much more distributed than the MPLS footprint into these uh, offices. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's analogous, I think, to... You know, the CEO sort of looking at expensive car parking in the central business district for some of their offices that's completely unused or almost completely unused in the last 12 months and just thinking that's sunk spend that's just not getting any return at all. So I think the mindset needs to change. So, again, you know, you need to think, um, who am I getting the advice from? Um, and broaden the pool of opinions. So don't just talk to co-evolve. Um, get, a, get a number of opinions, get a variety of opinions. And it's interesting as well, mate, that, you know, some of the procurement teams or say the CFO perhaps signing off on the agreement might look at the headline uh, from the telco and they might be sort of saying, we've doubled the bandwidth and we've kept the price the same. And the CFO might only be buying WANs every three years or five years or, you know, it, it, it's not something that they're doing regularly. And they might think on the surface that sounds like a good deal. And if the IT team's really just been talking to their main telco or a couple of telcos, then that's the sort of opinion that they might get. Um, if they really test the market, you know, they might find that they can get 10 times more bandwidth and save 30%. Or, you know, we've seen some stunning examples, again, based on what does the business really need to achieve for it first and foremost. So, so I think, you know, when you've constructed a real negotiating position um, not just through the procurement process, but by the technology architecture enabling that com competition uh, at that circuit underlay, you know, then you're going to get some really interesting opinions and then you're going to see some really um, exciting data points that will really help the business, I'd suggest. I think that's exactly right. And you really have to go to that level of detail to really know what good looks like, what is a good deal, what is not a good deal. And collecting all of those different data points is really where you start to see 
where the market is and how far off the market some of these offers that are being put on the table from incumbent suppliers and so on actually look like. And I think the the other interesting dynamic here, and it's, it's quite a different one, is there are a whole bunch of enterprises that have adopted SD-WAN and maybe even they were part of the early adopters of SD-WAN, but they kept it largely using the same underlay infrastructure that they had in place. And there's quite a big difference in the, the product functionality and capability across the, the leading SD-WAN vendors in terms of how effectively they can use multiple circuits at the same time, how well they can mitigate uh, just very transient quality issues on the circuits and effectively allow you to pool the bandwidth together. So there's a whole range of SD-WAN products on the market today that are pretty widely used, but still treat the network in that primary backup scenario. You designate your primary circuit, you, it will then try to keep the traffic on that primary circuit unless there's some catastrophic failure there and it needs to move it away. So that in turn drives architecture decisions because if you can't depend on the quality of any one circuit, uh, if it's an internet-based circuit, for example, all the time, then that can lead the enterprise to start looking at how they can maintain quality in the network. And very often that means you keep your MPLS or you keep your high calls DIA circuit and that has the, the big effects on the economics that, uh, that we'll talk about in a couple of moments. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty broad range of, of reasons, but I think the, the implications are that you can very easily find yourself uh, locked out of some of the benefits of these, uh, these newer technologies for a whole variety of reasons. And you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit about you know, what, what those things they're missing out on potentially might look like. That's right. And and I want to sort of just come back to the point you made before to sort of stress that if you want to think differently about the architecture, then please drop that mentality that we've had in networks in decades gone by of primary circuit and secondary circuit. So as long as you keep that um, paradigm, that thinking, then you're going to constrain your architecture options. Um, the vendor technologies do vary, but the better ones, the better SD-WAN vendors, you know, will treat that as an agnostic pool of bandwidth. And so drop that sort of old primary backup or primary secondary mentality, and that'll really help free up your team to come up with the right architecture, I'd suggest. So let's look at some of the implications of these choices. So if you've got a network that consists primarily of high cost uh, legacy infrastructure like MPLS, for example, then what does that actually mean? Or what are the implications of that for the enterprise and their network? So I think the first of those is that cost reductions in enterprise networks today primarily come from the underlay. And it's not exclusively so. You can find uh, operational cost savings, for example, by adopting technologies like SD-WAN or moving to an as-a-service model as opposed to some of the legacy procurement models and so on. But the reality is that if you're buying top-of-the-line, high-quality infrastructure, everywhere across the network, then you're just making it really difficult to find overall savings in the network. And it means that you're carving out those segments of cost as being effectively off limits, as opposed to opening that up as part of the, uh, the categories of spend that you can really look at. And I'm not saying there that uh, cost savings on MPLS networks are non-existent because we've actually seen some really aggressive approaches from telcos to actually keep uh, a lot of their clients on MPLS networks. And we've seen some telcos even look at uh, approaches like offering to change out the technology, they, you know, change it from MPLS to internet, for example, 
and keep the local access circuit so that you, you'd stay and keep the relationship with that telco. So there's some creative approaches out there, but it just becomes really difficult to find savings unless you're willing to look at breaking up that network and, and getting rid of the, the legacy MPLS component. And the second is that the reality is that for many enterprises, and I would say two years ago, I would have said this was applicable to 60 or 70% of enterprises. Today, I think it's probably 90 plus percent of enterprises. MPLS just doesn't make sense in those environments. It, the reality is it's expensive bandwidth that goes to the wrong place. It's a closed network. It takes your traffic between edge sites and data centers when that is a rapidly diminishing use case for many enterprises today. It's, it's very often just some final legacy applications that need to take that path. The vast majority of traffic is actually leaving the network going to cloud infrastructure or SaaS applications or other uh, destinations like that that sit off the network. So it's fulfilling a role that I think barely exists in many enterprises today. And that's a trend that has really accelerated over the last year with a lot of the changes we've seen because of COVID. You've got many more users now accessing applications from outside the network. So they're not getting an MPLS connection to their home office. They're sitting outside the perimeter of that traditional network they need to gain access to the, the centralized infrastructure and resources, but they're doing it from a home internet connection or a mobile connection typically by default. Then you've got the fact that the applications themselves are moving to SaaS. Even two or three years ago, we heard enterprises say, well, we need to keep MPLS in place to support our voice and video traffic. But that's become one of the very rapidly accelerating SaaS trends is the move towards unified comms, the move towards cloud-based video solutions like Zoom or Teams or other services like that. And what's happened there is that many enterprises have actually seen improvements in the performance because they can now deliver far more bandwidth to the internet than they could to an internal private network because the MPLS networks were just so thin in the past. So it's actually opened up the, the possibility of using these types of uh, best effort networks and the internet and so on even for traffic that was considered the most demanding types of traffic not that long ago. Then you've got things like cloud connectors, so express route connections, direct connect, and so on. And the reality is that if you're using an MPLS network combined with direct connect, express route to get to a cloud service provider, then you're operating in an environment that is just an ideal scenario for the telco model. This is a huge profit center for telcos selling so-called reliable connectivity back to the cloud, the very significant markups on this type of connectivity. And the reality is there's just better ways of providing this connectivity. There's a whole bunch of alternative backbone type uh, providers. There is uh, products like Azure Virtual WAN and uh, AWS Direct Connect that can give really good reliable connectivity between the regions across the cloud providers, backbones and so on. So there's, there's just more modern and better ways of getting this reliable connectivity from the enterprise network to the cloud. And probably the, the most uh, painful thing for many enterprises is that it's just really difficult to address this endless demand for more bandwidth if you're using a high cost MPLS uh, primary circuit approach. It's, it's very, very difficult to uh, keep up with that demand because you're just not able to align that with how typical budgeting cycles work. If you're going to be adding you know, double the amount of bandwidth every year, which is not uncommon for many enterprises today, that's next to impossible with traditional telco sourcing models. And 
you need to start looking at, at alternative approaches. And I think that's one of the, the challenges we hear time and time again from clients, right, Tim? Yeah, yeah. I was looking at, uh, just on this sort of theme, I was looking at a branch transformation uh, report uh, by uh, Zscaler. So Zscaler, uh, you know, very well uh, placed to give a perspective on this, right? They have um, over about 12 years, give or take, they've built up an amazing business of cloud-delivered security. They've built probably about 5,000 enterprise and government clients. Some of those clients have got thousands of users. Some of those clients have got tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of users. So yep. they've got a massive um, um, installed base to, to view this. And, and the report said that the average compound annual growth rate for internet consumption is 30% CAGR. C-A-G-R, compound annual growth rate. Okay. I never know how to pronounce that. <laughs> um, and if you have traffic volumes that uh, your current network just simply wasn't designed to handle. Um, and, and the funny thing was, mate, that was a 2018 report, you know, based on data analysis from 2017. So, you know, you know, who, who, who thinks it's gone down since then? You know, put your hand up, anyone who's done more Zoom calls in the last 12 months than they were doing in 2017, you know. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a one-way unstoppable trend um, away from what these MPLS networks back in the 90s were designed to do. So uh, you're sort of trying to hold back the tide if you're, um, if you're looking at the network any other way. So what does good look like then? And if we look at some of the challenges that enterprises have with these legacy underlay options and the uh, the implications of having that type of infrastructure in these networks, then what does the, the other end of that spectrum look like? And I think the, the first action that enterprises should look to take, and uh, I know we've been saying various flavors of this for, for quite some time, is to, to fragment the underlay and deliberately fragment the underlay. So the best outcome when you look at it across any number of dimensions, whether it's performance, whether it's price, whether it's uh, stability or reliability, it's not going to be a single telco delivered solution. So there's a, a whole different approach that enterprises can take to how they look at underlay in their networks, which is to start to consider it as a pool of capacity instead of primary and backup circuits. So you don't necessarily care about any one member of the, that particular pool, you focus on making sure there is a pool. You've got a number of different circuits. Ideally, you've got different medium types and so on so that you've got some level of diversity, but the reality is you're not gonna be able to absolutely guarantee that in every case. And the, the way to make that achievable in most cases is to look down market for the circuits. So effectively ignore the highest cost, dedicated capacity, SLA backed circuits, and look at offerings that are maybe more targeted towards the SME market and more focused on that mid-market segment where there's not necessarily the appetite to pay the, the highest amounts for the underlay, underlay connectivity, but the actual quality that you can get from those circuits, especially when it's part of a pool, is often good enough. And I think that as a foundation probably sets enterprises up really well to be able to deliver a, a good quality outcome. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Tim? Yeah, no, I totally agree. So when you say fragment um, the underlay, you know, I don't think you're proposing that you just choose more suppliers for the sake of more suppliers. You know, I think what you're right. really saying is separate that decision on the overlay and the underlay. So you've got, you know, clear analysis and thought processes on that SD-WAN overlay. 
and again, clear analysis and uh, thought processes to make the right assessments across that fragmented pool of um, suppliers at the underlay that are potentials and really make smart decisions. And, and, and maybe made a, a, a real world example would help here. So um, we've got a very valued client interface. Um, so an amazing business. They manufacture carpet tiling for sort of industrial and uh, enterprise type settings. So for office buildings and convention centers, airports and the like. Um, been around for a long time, since the 70s, a real um, pioneer of um, really sustainable manufacturing processes decades became, before that became a sort of a, a real hot topic. Um, so really fascinating business. We're you know, delighted to start working with them in 2016. And in 2017, we were rolling out their APAC um, network. Um, so they've got business globally. Um, so they've got a big EMEA presence, um, big America's presence where they're head, head officed in Atlanta. But we were working initially with the APAC network. And the interesting thing there was as you say, sort of separating that underlay and the uh, overlay decision, they made a, a clear decision that the SD1 overlay in that case would be um, VelaCloud as it was then, um, subsequently bought by VMware later in 2017. Um, but at the underlay, again, you don't get sort of dogmatic about, you know, thou shalt keep MPLS or thou shalt remove MPLS. You just really look at um, what is right for those sites and even what level of comfort the client has. So back in 2017, they made the decision to replace almost all of the MPLS, but just kept it to a couple of their biggest sites. They weren't quite ready to cut the umbilical cord for those really large sites. They wanted to see more data points through um, 2017, 2018. And, and sure enough, you know, the network worked beautifully um, over that entire um, fragmented underlay. And it was really interesting to see the power of the statistics of the performance of these different circuits, internet and MPLS. And uh, without um, naming the name of the telco MPLS, they're actually getting better performance on much cheaper internet circuits to a number of countries than, uh, than they were getting. So interestingly enough, they sort of thought, you know, a year after the initial deployment, based on all the data, it'd be an interesting decision point to see whether they could drop that MPLS at those handful of um, largest sites. It wasn't even a discussion point. It was self-evident, you know, the statistics uh, of the performance to the internet sites and, and frankly, the uh, underperformance, uh, let alone the staggering cost and cost per meg of the, uh, you know, well-known telco MPLS circuits um, made that really uh, a really clear-cut thing for them. So I think that's a practical example, perhaps, of, you know, separating the overlay and the underlay and making the decision sort of mutually with the client and, 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 you know, we were delighted to then um, overdue, over time, based on a good performance and a great relationship with Interface to um, to then deliver to uh, all of the, the Americas and EMEA as well and make that a global network uh, earlier this year. So grateful for the, the chance to work with them over many years now. Absolutely. Yeah, and no, that's been a really good relationship there and some great results that we've seen from it as well, definitely. So I think the next point then is is that you should look to take some what I'd describe as sensible steps, and you can you can turn yourself inside out trying to achieve this, especially if you've got a, a global mix of sites, but you should take some sensible steps to try to find media diversity in the network. And the reality is in most typical enterprise uh, office buildings, it's gonna be really difficult to guarantee that. If you're looking to give an absolute guarantee around that and have multiple entry points into buildings and so on, 
that tends to take you right back up to the very top in terms of the price points for the underlay in order to engineer in that level of diversity. So you need to look at what's practical and realize that in most cases it's not going to be guaranteed, but it's probably going to be good enough if you can get a good mix of underlay types in there. So we see it, for example, in US networks, you can often get a connection from whoever the local cable company is combined with a connection from the local phone company. In many other markets, there's things like fixed wireless, there's unlimited data plans for 4G or 5G services. We're even looking now at low earth orbit satellite, Starlink and so on as being a, a, a potentially really viable option as part of this pool. The reality is that in many cases, not any single one of these underlays would be good enough on their own, but as part of that overall pool, when you combine it with the right SD-WAN technology across the top, you can bring that quality level back up to where it needs to be and end up with a pool of, of connectivity that performs as well as, or in many cases, as you said, Tim, even better than the, uh, the traditional MPLS networks that it's, uh, that it's replacing. So it's quite a different mindset, but it's, um, it's, it's able to deliver the types of results that you would want to see, even in some, some unusual markets as we've seen with our clients. Yeah, and, and don't assume that the vendor technology is going to give you all of the information. So absolutely, the, um, the VeloCloud or VMware now, uh, SD-WAN Orchestrator, in the case of that interface example, gives a lot of information at the fingertips of, um, of the client, not just the managed service provider like us, um, to see how the uh, performance, not just of the circuits, but the applications is, is in real time. But don't assume that's going to answer everything you need. So in actual fact, we often, um, with our API-based API reporting, add a lot of additional um, alerting and data that really is actionable on the way through. So of those services, you know, if the 4G usage is hitting some data caps or, you know, breaching some thresholds that we've agreed with the client, there's, uh, in our smart services approach, there's a whole lot of additional value add in addition to the, um, you know, the underlying SD-WAN vendor technology uh, that adds value to those client scenarios. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it doesn't stand still. So you need to plan for a level of change in the underlay network because the market is pretty dynamic and having partners you can work with that can help manage that level of change over time means that you can track the market prices from a, a product and availability perspective, but then also not lose out on some of the opportunities that are out there. So as new technologies that disrupt the, the existing market come online, you need to be in a position both commercially and architecturally where you can easily adopt those types of technologies and, and achieve the benefits of them. So that as a, a mindset is an important one that you're not making long-term decisions. You're making far more transient decisions around bandwidth in order to tap into the fact that you're, you're dealing with this very dynamic market. And you need to look across the whole network, not just at the very edge of the network. So when you start looking at cloud on-ramp, uh, cloud connectivity solutions, as I said earlier, there's, there's far better options available from a performance, from a price point perspective that can really change how you build these networks and how you use different types of, whether it's co-location facilities or other integration points to access these alternative backbone and cloud on-ramp options compared to the traditional telco approach. So by going down that path, you can have a lot more functionality, but then continue to track cost savings because the whole economic model for a lot of these products is just vastly different than traditional telco underlay. And then you also need to make sure that the overlay layer is up to the task. So 
SD-WAN is not one size fits all. And the reality is a lot of the products that are out there are just cloud managed or centrally managed routers. And you need to use products that align well with this pool mentality for the circuit capacity. You're not choosing primary and backup. You're building networks based around these pools. You're not pinning traffic to individual circuits, but you're throwing that into the mix and having the network and the overlay make the decisions around how to send that traffic down particular paths, but then back out of those choices within milliseconds if those if those options change. So it's a totally different mindset to building the networks. And and uh, that flexibility is key because you know the enterprises we talk to inevitably have got some outliers, right? You know they uh, they've got yeah. maybe eighty percent of their estate is reasonably easy to serve, and then there's inevitably you know a handful of sites. So it varies by industry. You know it might be a manufacturing site in a or in an odd location, or maybe they've got some serving some mining clients. Again, you know, sort of um, bringing in a practical example or two here, um, thinking of a client of ours, uh, MPC Kinetics. So they're a fantastic business that does sort of like construction and engineering services. Um, and some of their locations are in fairly easy to reach um, geographies, and some of them are in really difficult geographies. So yeah. the technology... Um, can really optimize those choices in those difficult situations. So some of the MPC Kinetic clients are mining companies that need infrastructure built out to that mining camp in a remote location or even sort of remote gas facilities and remote gas pipelines that um, need maintenance engineers to go along. So, you know, they've even got sites out, you know, in, in the Tanami Desert, you know, in, in the middle of Australia or, or sort of on the, the border of Northern Territory and, uh, and Western Australia you know, thousands of kilometres away from uh, from any even even remote size, uh, remotely sized uh, cities. So, um, you know, really being able to uh, have the flexibility to optimise those choices at the underlay, even for those real edge cases or outliers, um, but keep a unified SD-WAN layer um, because you've separated those two um, considerations, you know, it really does make flexibility all the way through, not just at the start of the agreement, but all of the way through the life of the network real. So the final topic I wanted to talk about today is one that you and I have enjoyed many interesting conversations about over the years, Tim, which is the whole topic about SLAs and do they even matter anymore, especially at the underlay level for, for enterprise networks? And I think there's probably no very simple answer to that. I think the reality is it depends on what's being measured, what the SLA is offering, and you know what the actual benefit that the enterprise is getting from the SLA. And the reality is that if you look at this from a, a traditional telco SLA perspective, they've got so many loopholes in them that it's difficult for the for the enterprise to actually deliver any value and or achieve any value out of them. And it's often a bit of a minefield for them to have to navigate through all of those different loopholes and exclusions to actually understand what credits they can get or what's applicable and what's not applicable. And you've seen some pretty creative approaches to that by the by the telcos over the years from what I've seen. Yeah, uh, provocative comment, Mr. Roche. Uh, do SLAs even matter? That'll, that'll, that'll hopefully generate some discussion. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, we talked about when we first started working together, you know, I remember back then, UUNet, who got bought out by uh, Worldcom, uh, back in the day before Worldcom became Verizon. Um, UUNet had a 100% availability SLA on the internet, and uh, just plain old internet. 
And, uh, you know, so you've actually got to remember that, you know, these SLAs are essentially a marketing statement. You know, it's less about, you know, complex engineers, engineering and uh, complex mathematics and actuarial studies to, to really define these SLAs. And as you say, then, you know, when you really actually read through the SLA, you know, oh, but it excludes the local loop. And, you know, that's the local ISP, uh, local tail provider issue there. Or actually, there's all these business hours exceptions. And actually, really, the applicable time um, that you felt is very different to the applicable time that gets calculated. Or, uh, you know, there's, oh, there was scheduled maintenance down of one of our downstream providers, Mr. Client. So, you know, there's, as you say, um, you got to put it in perspective, um, you know, really, you know, it, it started off really as a marketing proposition, SLAs, uh, and really, you know, by the time practically it's implemented, by the time you consider all these exclusions and what that really means and do all the work to do that, you know, what, what are you really getting out of it, you know? And I think, you know, people should be asking themselves a question before they just sort of blindly go, it's a four nines availability SLA or whatever it might be as a number. Yeah, I think that's very true. and. The reality is then for, for how most uh, networks behave today, I think we'd argue that, that individual circuit SLAs just are, are really struggling to be relevant in that environment. And you can achieve comparable or even better outcomes by going back to that pooled approach that we talked about, set internal targets then for the, the availability of the pool. So don't necessarily consider it as being a contractual responsibility for a single party to deliver on because as you said it's in many cases just based on marketing as opposed to to reality and the credits are often negligible and very difficult to get so the the traditional approach wasn't great anyway so maybe looking at this as a a pool measure the pool measure the availability and uptime of the pool measure the duration that's going to be required to restore that back to full health if a member of it is is down or for whatever reason. And the whole mentality there is to take an engineering type approach to get a specific level of reliability or uptime or performance versus paper-based SLAs and credits. Because the reality is that's more likely to deliver a better outcome for the enterprise compared to something where you're just applying a level of trust that this provider has your back they're going to they're going to build a network that's going to support that sla that they're offering because we've seen so many times but that just isn't the case so i think that different mentality can really make a big difference for uh, for enterprises yeah mentality is the word you know we're absolutely saying service matters you know without a shadow of a doubt service matters um so you know don't misconstrue uh dear listeners our, our view that service doesn't matter when we say when we're questioning the traditional uh, SLAs, we're just sort of saying, you know, how does it fit with what you need now and going into the future? Um, And that sort of um, marketing statement where the carrier is essentially innocent until you prove them guilty um, mentality is really not helping you. You know, the way I'd look at it would really be if, if there's a problem, what's going to drive the behavior and what's the likelihood that I'm going to get the right quality of engineering help when I really need it the most? So I'd be sort of really looking at those um, triggers for what actions um, and what behaviors and what track record with other clients does that provider have at really when there is an issue and there's always going to be issues on these networks, when there is an issue, you know, what can I count on and what behaviours are going to be driven at that time? 
more than sort of, you know, some four week later arbitrary calculation of percentages after all the exclusions we talked about before um, when the issue is long and gone. And, you know, even after you do all those calculations, you know, the, the credits won't buy your lunch anyway. So it's not like the, you know, they match the financial impact that you felt. But, but better than doing the calculations after the fact, um, you know, really what is it, what behaviours are going to happen in that time? What intelligence have you built into that service to actually get better analytics and better prevention um, on the way through? And, uh, you know, as we said the, uh, in the last podcast, uh, Kieran, you and, you and Luke, one of our valuable team members, is going to be um, doing a podcast on what our smart services vision is and how to build more and more intelligence in to prevent the issue in the first place, right? You do have to look at it at that level of detail. You've got to make sure that you've got the right type of infrastructure, but then the right type of operating model across the top of that and the right tools to be able to combine all of those together to to deliver these types of quality outcomes. You can't just take the chance in every case and uh, and hope for the best. You have to take a much more carefully engineered approach. And I think that's probably a good way to, to sum up this topic. And I hope, hope our listeners have found this useful. But the reality is that the approach that we're talking about and advocating today it is more difficult for enterprises than just a single telco relationship where one party delivers the network, they, they become the single point of contact for everything and it sits on their backbone and so on. It's more difficult, but there's benefits there that more than offset those difficulties. And the telcos of the world would love if enterprises went with the easier option of just having the single relationship with them because the reality is the alternative is pretty much an ex existential threat for those telcos. If all of the enterprises of the world realized that they could operate networks very effectively just over low-end internet connectivity in many cases, then that really diminishes the need for traditional telco models and backbones and so on. And you'll start to see really an accelerated shift towards more of the use of cloud providers combined with local internet providers and so on. And this challenge and the, the steps required to, to put this type of solution into practice, this is something that Coevolve is really purpose-built to address. So, you know, we're not here talking about these topics really just to be smart industry commentators and point out all these insights that are, you know, there's better ways of doing this or you should look at this instead. But we've actually built a business to help guide enterprises through that process and everything from the you know, the early stages of these uh, network transformation projects all the way through to uh, implementation, management, optimization, and so on. So we've got a team that has that expertise in the underlay piece globally, the backbones, cloud connectivity, SD-WAN, SASE, security, all the topics that make up this sort of jigsaw puzzle of uh, what a future state network looks like. This is something that we are really purpose-built to deliver. So it's it's a topic we like talking about, you know, really because we've got a very strong uh, answer to a lot of the challenges that enterprises have. And it's really the foundational reason why we focus on this telco independent message. It's impossible for enterprises to, to unlock this full level of, whether it's cost savings, performance, functionality, or all of the other benefits under a traditional telco bound model. You've got to kind of break it apart, look at all the different layers and find the best way of sourcing each one of those in order to unlock all of those benefits. So it's a, it's a topic that I think is going to be relevant for quite some time, but it's a, it's certainly a fun one for us to talk about. So Tim, appreciate you uh, going through this today and you know sharing some of the uh, 
the perspectives. Uh, hopefully, the the listeners found this interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the point, isn't it? You know, we we really encourage that people get a mix of opinions, not just ours, a mix of opinions, and really, do those opinions have experience? You know, that they've lived through, that um, really substantiate those opinions, and what data points have they got to support that? And what's their vested interest? We've all got vested interests. Um, and then, as you said earlier, Kiron, you know, really separate the uh, the SD WAN overlay and SASE uh, requirements to the circuit underlay. That's what's going to drive you a better result on your total cost of ownership. Get a truck more load, more bandwidth, and save money for the business. Um, and then finally, you know, keep your options open. You know, always optimize for flexibility. Absolutely. No, that's uh, it's a good way to end this. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Tim, for joining and. As I mentioned at the beginning, we'll have some more exciting topics uh, coming soon. So if there's anything else you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, feel free to reach out to us through the, uh, the contact details in the show notes. So thanks for listening and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you.